The New Testament reading is from 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. But I know in part, then I shall know fully, fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. We've come to what is by far the most well-known portion of the letters to the Corinthians, and if you've been in a wedding, um, doubtless you've heard this many, many times, and I'm uh, intimidated to try to add anything to it. Uh, Maybe we should just read it slowly over and over and let the words sink in. But I am going to try to tell you a couple of things about it, um, because it does become so familiar by repetition that we may miss a couple of things. And so, as I attempt to do this and to comment on such a beautiful passage, let let me pray for us as we get started. Father, as we encounter your word this morning, we, are, um, we recognize that these are not mere words, but this is the word, that your Son inhabits these words. Lord, I pray that we would each meet him. Wherever we're coming from this morning, whether we are a stranger to this place, whether we are coming back to this place after a long absence, whether we are surprised that we find ourselves in a place like church this morning, or whether this is our regular spot, I pray that we would encounter you, and that you would encounter us, and that you would meet us where we are, in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of our loneliness, in the midst of our lovelessness, I pray that you would be love for us, and that you would inhabit our hearts with love, that you would inhabit this church body with love, and that it would change us that it would make us to be more loving as people and as a community. And we pray that you would guide us as we seek to understand your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So I was on uh, Facebook yesterday and scrolling through, and of course, uh, the perfect illustration comes up just in time. Saturday, there was a, a meme about love, and it was uh, three vials, if you can imagine, in a um, sort of scientist type of vials, there was three, three of them, and they were talking about how different emotions affect our neurotransmitters and the chemicals and hormones in our brain. And so there were three vials of dopamine and serotonin and then oxytocin. And it then flashed different emotions. So anxiety, you saw the blue dopamine vial was way down. Only about a fifth of it was filled, and the rest were empty. Depression, there was a little bit more dopamine and a little serotonin, but not very much. Because when you don't have those types of uh, chemicals, when you're low in serotonin, you're prone to depression. Now, with happiness, the green serotonin vial gets filled up, but all the others are empty. But then love. Love pops up on the screen, and all three fill up to overflowing. Dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin. Now, this is probably an oversimplification. I'm not sure. There's some doctors here that could probably tell us. Probably an oversimplification, but science has shown us that love does, in fact, activate these three chemicals in a uniquely powerful way. A researcher asked newly in love couples to have their brains examined, and they discovered that many of them had the same high levels of dopamine that cocaine users had. Another showed that serotonin in new lovers matched that of OCD patients, and that's why you constantly think about the person that you're now dating person that you've fallen in love with. They keep coming back in your mind. It's like OCD. (laughs) Then there's oxytocin, which is called the attachment hormone because it's high in bonded couples and in new moms toward their children. And in sheep and rats, they deprived oxytocin, and the sheep and rats, the moms, rejected their young because they didn't have this chemical. And then they injected, or they deprived, and then they injected sheep and rats, and Those, uh, they actually bonded with other people's, uh, other sheep and rats, children and offspring. They snuggled with them and took care of them. So maybe the Beatles are right. All you need is love to stimulate all the right neurotransmitters in your brain. So we can understand, can't we, how Paul can write such a stunningly beautiful picture of love and why love lies at the very center of the Bible story and of the biblical ethic. But it's difficult, isn't it, to actually practice love in real relationships with our spouse, with our parents, with our teachers, with our boss at work, with someone on the other end of a mean email. It's very difficult to practice this type of love that Paul is describing for us. It's difficult to map these words onto our actual relationships, to be known as someone whose love never fails, to be known as someone who doesn't boast or envy, who doesn't keep a record of wrongs. These people are special, right? Because this is so difficult. You notice when a relationship of yours doesn't keep a record of your wrong because it's so seldomly accomplished. And it's also difficult because we talk about love in sort of sentimental ways. We're much more cavalier about it. I really love going to the beach. I love Thanksgiving. I love a good coffee. I love beer. 
I love my new iPhone. We toss these, this word love out about many things that sort of make it cavalier or we sentimentalize it. So we come to 1 Corinthians 13, and we think that when the Corinthian church received this letter, that they would respond the same way that we do. We would expect them to act like we do. We do. Aren't these words sweet? We should put them in our wedding. We should put them on a Hallmark card. We should tack them up in our bathroom so we'll be reminded about the ever-present nature of love, and we should aspire to that. And there's nothing wrong with doing any of those things, right? But the Corinthians would have heard these words very differently. Not just a generic ode to love that Paul writes here in the middle of this letter, but what's, he's saying this is what is missing in your church, Corinthians. Love is the antidote to everything that is going wrong in the Corinthian church. These divisions and strife and infighting, love is the solution. I want to share just four things about you, and they're quick. First of all, love is the ground of meaning. Love is the ground of meaning. What Paul is saying here is that spirituality without love is nothing. Spirituality without love is nothing. The Corinthian church was a church of extremes. They had these spectacular, sensational things going on in Corinth. Prophecy, tongues, miracles, generous giving to the poor. They're extreme in that, but they're also extreme in their divisions and in their competitiveness, in their pride, and in their jealousy. And in verses 1 through 3, Paul drops the hammer on them. He says, if I speak in tongues of men, in other words, like you are, Corinthians, or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, if you're older here, you probably remember the gong show for the younger among, among us, like myself. Uh, it's kind of like America's Got Talent. This was a, a talent show. And we, but maybe, um, but if the contestant came out and they really stunk, the judges would hit this gigantic gong in order to say, nope, move on, we don't want any more of this. Well, that's what Paul is doing here with all of the Corinthians' impressive spiritual gifts and talents. He's saying, you know what, you're out of here. The gong is coming out. And he goes on, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Spiritual gifts, excitement, enthusiasm, even giving away all your money adds up to one big fat nothing if it's not undergirded, infused with love. There's nothing wrong with these other things. Love is not a replacement for them, but love is the ground of their meaning. Reinhold Niebuhr has this great quote, a 20th century philosopher and theologian, and he says, any justice that's only justice soon soon degenerates into something less than justice. Justice is rescued only by something deeper and spiritually richer than justice, namely love. For us, 
practically speaking. We can be knocking it out of the park in our spiritual disciplines, our spiritual duties, going above and beyond just tithing. Every time there's a need at church, you show up. You're the one that fills it. You're dependent upon. And we can still do all of that and be spiritual disasters. You can be an expert in church history. You can quote the Bible right and left. You can know all of the right theology. You can talk about any biblical topic with expertise, but if it's not done with love and in love and for love, you can inflict great damage upon others in the church. And for us as a body, we can have a whole lot going on. We can be busy, we can be noisy, and it can be pointless. Paul can be standing in the back of our auditorium with a big gong and telling us that all of our running around and busyness is pointless because it's loveless, and we should consider that. This passage really is a spiritual audit for us. How are we doing? What are we about? What motivates us when we get up in the morning? What are we striving for at work, at school, at church? Is it to give ourselves away to others and to the world in love, or is it to bank some sort of meaning? something for ourselves, to accrue accomplishments so that we can have something to point at, to know that we're something. Without love, we're just waking up every morning and banging a cymbal over and over. We're making a lot of noise, but nothing will outlast us without love. Now, these are very difficult words, and it might get a little bit harder before it gets easier. First of all, love is the ground of meaning. Then, verse 8, that love is eternally significant. Paul is telling us that these spiritual gifts that are practiced in Corinth are transitory. All of these things that they're so proud of and slapping each other on the backs about, they're transitory. They will come to an end, but love never ends. He's not just writing this letter and then all of a sudden has this thought, you know, maybe I should say something about love. I'm going to write this beautiful poem to love that's not in the context of the rest of the letter. It actually fits exactly in what he is trying to accomplish and what he is trying to point out, the issues that he's dealing with with the Corinthians because they were infatuated with spiritual gifts, with these sensational displays of spiritual power, with eloquence, with debating, which is a particular affliction of Presbyterians. But where there are prophecies, verse 8, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. But love never fails. And then verse 13, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. What he is talking about is the relevance of the future to the present. That there are a lot of things that are indicative of significance and status in the present time that will simply fade away. And we don't have to be a Christian to see this, right? How many people on their deathbed wish that they had spent more time at the office? How many people who are advanced in age say, man, if I had just closed one more deal, then I would be happy? What becomes more and more precious toward the end of life is relationships of love. 
your loved ones being near you and sharing stories and sharing the love that has been built up in that relationship and banked over the course of decades. And Paul is telling us that there is an eternal reality that corresponds to that experience, that there is a coming time when heaven comes down to earth, where the overriding value and the overriding experience of everyone will be love. It will be love from God to us and from us to God and among us that we give and share with one another. How do older people get the insight that they have? Do they grow in intuition? Do they have a spike in IQ towards the end of their life? No. They don't have a sudden clairvoyance either. What happens? They grow up. They experience life. They get older. Listen what Paul says in verse 11. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. When you're a child, your communication strategies, your life negotiation strategies are very different than when you are an adult. At least for most people, they are. What does a child do when it wants something? A child whines, it stomps its feet, it cries, it falls on the floor, it wails. But as you grow up, you realize if I do that in my office place, I'm going to look like an idiot. And you don't do that any longer. Paul is telling the Corinthians that these spiritual gifts, these sensational displays of power, this theological debating, this knowledge without love doesn't correspond with ultimate reality. That anything, in fact, that we're focused upon, that we're infatuated with, if it's not undergirded and infused, imbued with love, then it's ultimately meaningless. But here's the flip side. There's an encouraging converse to this because the smallest, seemingly trivial acts, if they're injected with love, become ultimately, eternally meaningful and significant. Jesus tells us, truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did it unto me the most trivial, the most menial, menial acts of service, if they're done in love, can be eternally significant. God has designed the world, the cosmos, in fact, with love at the center and with love as its future. And that future is relevant to the present. Well, then he tells us a few things that love is not. Love is negatively defined. It does not envy it does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil. Now, notice about this list. What is he saying here? He doesn't say love doesn't murder. He doesn't say love doesn't rape and pillage. Love doesn't rob banks and steal cars. No, of course not. That's the Ten Commandments. What he is saying here is far more subtle because this is character. This is who we are in the interior. This is the stuff that exists below the rules. This is how you are in private and when no one is looking. You see, the reason is, is that we can give our money away. We can be philanthropic. We can be playing by all the rules. We can be an incredibly moral person 
We can be seen as an incredibly good person in so many ways, and yet, are you impatient with people? Yet, do you get irritable? That's a hard one. Are you harsh? Are you self-centered? Do you send unkind emails? Do you hold grudges and subtly work behind the scenes to undermine? Do you secretly delight in others' downfall? You see, what Paul is saying is that these are the real measurements, not that you simply don't do something. It's like in a marriage. Some people are content just to stay married, but the purpose of marriage is actually moving towards one another with love and graciousness and forgiveness. And if that's not existing, we can't just pat ourselves on the back because we happen to coexist in the same household. People who really know you can see these things about you. Your moral virtue is not being driven by love. In fact, your moral virtue can really be all about you. But it gets more severe because... Being a loving person isn't simply about avoiding certain behaviors. As I said, it's about intentionally seeking other people's good. Because he says in verse 7, love always protects. Love always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. It is intentionally moving towards other people with their good in mind. Now, he's not telling us here when he says that we always trust, that we are to be naive, that we're to put ourselves in compromising positions because we should trust someone that we shouldn't. The word here for trust is being committed to, being committed to the other person's good, which may mean removing yourself from the orbit of a damaging person so that they can't hurt you anymore, and so that they can see firsthand the consequences of their behavior. That is actually caring for that person. It's not being naive. It can mean speaking the truth to someone. Now, we've got to be careful here because you haven't been around the church very long if you haven't you heard that verse, speaking the truth in love, as a pretext for someone clobbering you with their truth, their version of the truth. For your own good, I'm going to tell you all the terrible things about yourself. For your own good, I'm going to tell you why you should see things my way. But I'm just speaking the truth in love. No, this is not what he's talking about. It's not harshly, not relishing the opportunity to finally let someone have it. But patiently, with hope, seeking someone's good with your words, choosing to speak with them candidly and directly for their good. This is exactly what Paul is doing in this letter. He is being very direct and very candid. He is calling the Corinthians out on their hypocrisy, but he is doing it because he loves them so much, and it's for their good. So love is the ground of meaning, first of all. Love is eternally significant. Love is negatively defined, and then finally love as a person. In order to love this way that Paul is describing, you have to meet the one who is love. 1 John 4, whoever does not know love does not know God because God is love. You see, it's not simply that God personifies love, but that in Jesus, love is embodied. 
He is love in his very nature. The very center of his character is love. He doesn't just practice love or show love, but he is love. So then this list isn't simply a list of things that we're called to, but they're a list of things that God himself exemplifies and embodies. So while there's not a perfect definition of love, right? Love is hard to describe, hard to define. While there's not a perfect definition of love, there is a perfect demonstration of it. This is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. Paul knew what to say about love. Paul knew how to describe love, its true nature, because he had experienced God's love for him. You could walk out of here thinking, after hearing this list of things that we are called to do, that the application would be, I need to be more patient. I need to be more kind. I need to throw away that record of wrongs in my mind. And maybe that is true. We all need to work on these things, of course. But we'll never be able to learn how to love people like this until we taste personally of God's love for us. Replace love with Jesus in this passage. Jesus is patient with you. Jesus is kind to you. Jesus is not easily angered by all of the ways that you live apart from him and maybe even shake your fist at him. Jesus keeps no record of your wrongs. Think about that. Jesus protects you. Jesus has hope for you. His love perseveres for you, even in the midst of your brokenness and your failure and your sin. Because you see, Jesus' love for you isn't based upon your loveliness. So you can be empowered to move towards other people who aren't lovely, who are actively unkind to you, or maybe even irritating. Sometimes that's the hardest. (laughs) What you need this morning isn't simply to be more patient, to be more kind, to put other people's actions and words in the best possible light. What you need, what I need, what we all need is we need more Jesus. We need to see and to personally taste and experience His love for us again and again because we only love because He first loved us. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, as we move into this time of confession and then partaking of the Lord's Supper together, we pray that you would let us see how deeply we are loved, how deeply we are embraced, that your love is indeed higher and richer and broader and more unique and more powerful and more strong than we can possibly imagine. And I pray that as we leave here, that our first instinct wouldn't be to just try harder to be more loving, but that we would sit in your love, that we would bathe in your love, that we would come to know your love, and that it would change us from the inside out, that we would find ourselves being more loving just out of instinct because you are at work in our hearts and in the life of this community. We pray that that would be true. In Jesus' name, amen.